0: You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. So, as you know, or probably you don't know, we're in the book of Ephesians in our sermon series. And today we're going to continue that. It's a beautiful book. I hope that it has been a blessing for you. It has for me. Uh, I missed last week, but... um, Raz did a, an awesome job, even though he had to use that one particular word, and he felt maybe funny and awkward about it, <laughs> um, but it's in the Bible. <laughs> so today, we're in Ephesians chapter 3. Um, today, we have six verses that we're going to look at, so chapter 3, uh, from 1 to 6. Well, let me ask you a question right from the get-go, right from the start. Have you ever wondered what God's plan for your life is? I think we all have, right, many times. Um, I know that so many people struggle and wrestle with this question of calling and purpose. Um, and if you remember in chapter 2, and I think Lucas was talking about this, uh, God was telling us through Paul that he created us in Christ Jesus to do good works. You remember that verse in chapter 2, right? Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, now, The problem is that we don't always know what these good works are, do we? And there are seasons in life that are very dry in in our spiritual walk with God, if I can say that. And there are even seasons of suffering and trials that we go through, and it may cause us to ask questions like, where is God in all of this? Like, what is this? Come on, God. What is his plan for our life? So often, we found ourselves wanting a Google Maps God. It's not my saying, I took it from someone else, but it's pretty relevant, I think. A Google Maps, that's all we want, a Google Maps God. We kind of all know how Google Maps works, right? So what does that mean? Well, it means that we want God to work like Google Maps, and we want him to, we want to tell him where we want to go, and we want him to give us a step-by-step instruction, day by day, hey, turn left here, Oh, if you turn right here, go straight now, and, and if we detour somehow from God's plan, we want him to recalculate around our own desires and our own little tiny plans. The reality is that God does not work like that, or at least that's not how I see God working in the Bible or in my life. Um, So today we are wrestling with this idea, how do we know in which direction we go in life? How do we fit into this world? Maybe you've asked questions like, where do I go to college or do I even go to college? Who should I marry or should I even marry? You know, there's so many on the list, right? And sometimes we're even left asking a small question like, what should I have for breakfast? Don't judge. People have done that, and it's perfectly fine. Because we're so hyper-focused on making sure that we're within God's will and God's call. And I know that it may seem very simple, right, that question, or even foolish for some. And yet some people get really worked up. Around trying to fit into God's plan in every detail in their life. And there's nothing wrong with that. So today, what I want to do, I want to actually zoom out. Because I think the key to understanding how do we fit into the world, the key to understanding God's plan for our life is by zooming out. And instead of being hyper-focused on our lives, is to look at what God is doing in the world around us. I'll say it again. I think the key to finding your place in the world is actually seeing and understanding God's plan for the world, seeing God's plan overall. Well, that's precisely what we see Paul doing in chapter 3, at least in the, in, in, at the beginning, at the, um, at the start of, the, of chapter 3. Uh, And that's exactly where we're at, like I said, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. I just want to read um, the passage, Um, so if you have your Bibles with you, I want to read the first three verses and kind of tackle that for now, and then we'll go to the the latter three verses. So, um, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. So remember, Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, right? Where he spent roughly, they say, around three years. There are many people in the church who knew him, right? And I'm assuming there are others that have joined the church after he left. So people who didn't know him, and he is likely writing this letter as a circular letter as, as well. So he's writing it you know, to people who haven't necessarily heard about Paul and who Paul is. So what Paul seems to be doing at the beginning of chapter 3, he is going to talk about his own calling and the role that he has specifically, the role that he plays in God's kingdom, just to kind of set the stage a little bit. So right off the start, you probably noticed, because you've probably looked at this text, and if you haven't, that's perfectly fine. There's a word that pops up that kind of bugs you, doesn't it? It's the word mystery, right? And there's there's so many Christians that are so confused around this word. Oh, is the gospel a mystery? No one really knows, right? Because it's a mystery. Well, and it shows up first in verse 3. And I'm not sure what comes to your mind as you hear the word, maybe... The mysteries that you read in novels, right? Something like that, or stuff that we watch on TV, some show about some mystery, right? But this is actually the proper definition of how Paul is using this word mystery. This is super important. It's knowledge that must be revealed to be known. It's knowledge that must be revealed to be known. Very different than maybe how we think of the word mystery. When Paul uses this word mystery, we have to remember that he is writing to the church in Ephesus, like I said. And there are so many cults, mystery cults there, and mystery religions, right? Actually, that's where the word mystic comes from. And in fact, the cult of Artemis, which was in Ephesus, right, was a mystery cult. And the way people would have used that word is you had to be high up within an organization to know all the secrets, you had to be initiated into a higher position if you wanted to understand the information and the secrets within that particular cult. But that's not how Paul is using this word at all. He's not. In fact, he's taking this common word mystery, which is mysterion in Greek, and he's infusing it with new meaning to refer to Christ in the gospel. That's what he's doing. Because it would have really... Uh, been kind of at the heart of people in Ephesus. We can say it like this, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to know the mystery of Christ. That's it. (laughs) You don't. Paul isn't saying that if you're you're just now hearing the gospel or if you haven't been to church in a while, you know, uh, Jesus is always going to be a mystery for you. No, he's not saying that. Unless some pastors initiate you within the higher ranks of Christianity, you're never going to know the gospel. No, that's not what he's saying. In fact, he's making the exact opposite point. Namely, that mystery is a knowledge that must be revealed to be made known. And what Paul was saying is that Christ has been revealed. And that's the beauty of it. There are no secrets within the gospel Not the way we we think about mystery, right? And, and, And you don't have to be high up within Christianity to know these secrets. No. What he's saying is that the gospel and who Jesus is has already been revealed to us from heaven above. Amen, yes. And he's really referring to, specifically, to how he got to know and experience the powerful encounter with this Jesus personally. He's pointing back to that. We can read about it in Acts 9, where Paul was on his way to this place called Damascus, if you know the story. And this is where he met the resurrected Christ, right? On the way there, he was knocked down his donkey, right? This is very significant because up until then, Paul was persecuting the church. He was killing Christians, right? And all of a sudden, he has this actual encounter with the resurrected Christ. And in that moment, his eyes were physically blinded in three days. And then he fasted and prayed for three days. He had the veil pulled back from his eyes so he could physically see again. But more significantly, I want us to see this. He had the veil pulled back from his heart spiritually. He actually understood at that point that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So we have to remember that this idea of the mystery of who Christ is, it was a mystery for Paul and is a mystery for a lot of the world still. Until Jesus Christ himself revealed that to him, to Paul, and to us. So what Paul is saying here is, church, I want to help you now that you would be clear now of this revelation of who Jesus really is. I want to help you understand what's been revealed to me so that you can see it too. That's what he's doing. I'm just trying to do my part to help reveal what I know about Jesus Christ to you. Now, specifically, we kind of alluded to the fact that this mystery is speaking about Christ and kind of the gospel. But but what is this mystery? What is he referring to specifically? And we have to get this next part, too, because it's very important. Paul is referring not just specifically to our personal salvation, as being a part of this mystery although that is a huge part of it a huge part of it but what he's referring to he's referring to the household of God we see how he alludes to it at the end of verse 3 so if you have your Bibles with you he says as I have written briefly he's referring back to last week's sermon in chapter 2 remember what Raz Talked about. Remember that he talked about being one in Christ? He, he was talking about the household of God, the family of God being one in Christ. That's exactly what Paul is specifically referring to when he speaks of this mystery. He's referring to the mystery of the household of God. And I, as I already said, end of verse 3 kind of gives it away. As I have written briefly, just a few sentences earlier. It's like, it's like an email where you just made a point and you say something like, you know see above i've already made that point see above right and that's that's what he's saying you want to know the mystery of christ and the gospel look at what jesus has done he has torn down the dividing wall of hostility and he's reconciled people not just with god with himself but he's also reconciled people with one another jews and gentiles so that you have this new humanity now Furthermore, when Paul talks about his role to play as a steward of God's grace, because we encounter this sort of a, um, you know, word, steward, steward of God's grace in verse 2. That word steward in, in is this Greek word oikonomia. We're going to do a little bit of, of, of seminary teaching. I hope that you're okay with that. It's going to be painless, I promise. So this word oikonomia, this Greek word means a household manager. I think it's really important for us to really get kind of the, the, the backdrop of this text. So this word comes from the root word oikos, which is also a Greek yogurt brand, right? You probably bought it, you're probably eating it, right? It's biblical if you do, so go for it, right? But it literally means house. It means house, right? It's the word that Paul uses to describe what we are as a church. We're a house. We're within the household of God. So really what Paul is doing, he has a play on words where he is saying we are the oikos, the house. And I, Paul, I'm the oikonomia. I'm the steward of the grace of God. So within the church, within the body, right, within the household of God, I have a unique role to play. That's what he's saying. And that unique role is to help people understand that the gospel is not just a personal salvation, although that is huge. It is a reconciliation within creation. It's a reconciliation. It's a tearing down, a tearing down of the dividing walls. It is a unity within the church. That's what he's specifically referring to. That's why church, you never really understand the gospel. In God's heart, unless your heart yearns for reconciliation, we don't. To desire to make it right with the people that your sin injured, or to extend forgiveness gracefully when others have injured you and offended you. I don't think we understand the gospel if our heart doesn't pursue forgiveness and reconciliation, no matter how hurt and offended you feel that you are. I've said this before, but it's worth mentioning it again. Mentioning it again. You shouldn't have any problems extending grace and forgiveness. You shouldn't. To your brothers and sisters for what they've done to you. Since Jesus is constantly offended by our sin and rebellion and stubbornness and our filthy sins. But he so graciously has forgiven us at the cross. Is that landing? It should so what paul is doing is making sense of his calling he knows what god's plan for his life is right and knowing what god's plan for his life is it helps him not panic it helps him like oh my god, i'm in prison what's going on god doesn't love me god what, what's is this your plan really paul has this calling this vision right to preach the gospel plant churches and all of a sudden he's in prison like what what's what's this i didn't I didn't order this, God. What's going on? I was doing a good thing. So let me ask you this question. What would you do in that moment? If that were you? What, would you. what would your reaction be to that? You want to preach the gospel and they put you in prison. Really, God? We would probably have our own sob stories, right? Oh, I can't preach on Sunday anymore. Oh, my life is over. Dah. I can't sing in the kids' choir anymore. I can't. Right? We have... I'm in prison, we, we would kind of have our own sob stories. But let me pinpoint what Paul does so we can learn from him. He is not so hyper-focused on God's individual plan for his life. He is looking at what God is doing as a whole. He has this grander vision for actually joining what God is already doing, which is powerful. And so he says, well, I can't speak to crowds anymore. I can't travel and plant churches anymore. I can't do that. But you know what I can do? I can write letters. So while Paul is in prison, he actually writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, four books in the New Testament. If Paul did not have this vision of joining what God is, was doing regardless of his circumstance, regardless of how dire the situation was, the Bible would be four books shorter. Isn't that amazing? I mean, God could have found someone else. I'm not looking at this from God's perspective. I'm looking at this from our, you know, responsibility. What can we learn from this church? Well, if we would just stop obsessing about our own little YouTube channels not getting enough traffic because apparently we have such an amazing Christian content that we put there. It's just an example. Just follow me. And get our hearts to focus on what God is doing in the world around us so we can join His work. We'll always miss the point in the heart of God. So we'll just obsess over our little kingdoms and, and, and then just waste time and just sob away. It's not even about me preaching. It's not even about you, whatever that calling, specific calling that you feel God is calling you to. No, no, no. Look at the big picture first. Then you'll be able to be faithful in that specific thing that God is calling you to. It's amazing to learn from Paul's example as a steward of the grace, of the gifts that God has given him. He's not shaken through suffering. He's not shaken through trial. He's actually always looking for how he can still accomplish his call as a steward of grace that was given to him. Now, that's something we can learn from him. Instead of trying to be hyper-focused on our individual lives and self-actualizing and fulfilling our personal desires and calling in this world, what if we looked at our lives as trying to further the mission of God, even in difficult situations? How about that? I can learn a lot from that. I need to learn a lot from that. But let's continue with the last three verses so verse 4 to 6 right when you read this he goes on when you read this you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ he says which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit in verse 6 this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus Through the gospel. What Paul continues to say here is super important and very significant. He says, when you read this, and he's referring to, you know, his letter, he says, you're going to understand the mystery of Christ deeper, somehow. Let me say this. We take reading for granted, don't we? Among many things. But when it comes to reading, we have more information coming across our screens on our phone than people have access to within their entire lives. So we're just inundated with information, aren't we? We have to remember that many people within the first century audience in the early church would have been illiterate. She couldn't read. They they wouldn't have been able to read. In fact, the parchment was so expensive to produce a book or a letter even that many people would just never read. But check this out. And the word that Paul uses here in the Greek, the anaganoskos, which refers to the public reading of Scripture, was super, super important, a super important part of the church back then. Because it was the few times each week that people would look forward to, would would get to hear and encounter the Word of God. How does that make you feel? That people were so excited to hear, maybe once a week, the Word of God. Just let that sink in for a while. Because Bi- I carry the Bible on my phone in so many different apps. And yet, I sometimes barely read it. So what Paul has in mind is that he fully expects. Scratch that. God fully expects. That the reading of of, of his letter through Paul, which would at some point circulate Asia Minor, would actually change people's understanding and knowledge of the gospel. That they would receive his insight into the mystery of Christ. Here's what that means for us. Plain and simple. Read your Bible to know Jesus. I, I don't know how to say it a different way. Let's read our Bible to know Jesus. We often take reading the Bible for granted, as I said, and I, I want to challenge us again. If you're not spending time in the Word, let me ask, what, what are you doing? What am I doing? And you may answer with this, because I have sometimes, I have, I've had this reason, or this, you know, yeah, this reason for a while why I'm not reading, why, I, why I'm not in the Word. Well, there's so many people that have devoted their lives or given their lives to studying the Bible, so it's just easier to listen to their stuff, and there's nothing wrong with that. So I'm just not going to spend too much time because by the time I get to their level, it's just it's years and years. I'm just going to listen to their stuff, and that's it. Listen, that answer right there gives us enough evidence and tells us that the, your heart is not in the right place. You're reading it for the wrong reasons. There's nothing wrong with podcasts and sermons. There's nothing wrong with that, but you need to get into the Word yourself. We're reading it for the wrong and you know uh, uh, reason sometimes just to know stuff about Jesus. And listen, that's important too because that's, that's how we get to know Jesus, by reading stuff about Him. But you should be in the Word to experience Jesus. We should be in the Word to experience Him more and more and to know our Savior and Lord Jesus. There's something supernatural, church. There's something powerful about studying the Word for yourself. There's something powerful about you, the Bible, and God, and just opening the, the Bible and just be in it. There's something powerful about that. There is. Just get alone with God. Ovi, get alone with God. Just you, God, in the Bible, and let Him speak to you. I cannot stress enough how important it is for your and our spiritual health, for our ability to see clearly, to think clearly, critically, to make godly decisions, to lead our families well. And when we read these words, we understand the gospel deeper. We perceive the insights into the mystery of Christ, just like Paul says. Let me ask this. How long have you ever gone without food? Two days? Anyone else? Longer than that? Three? Okay. Anyone beat that? Anyone got four? Four? Going once, going twice. <laughs> so I've... Four? Okay, four. Wow. Patrick, how'd you feel afterwards? You, how did you feel at the end of the four days? Uh, hunger? Yeah, exactly. So I, I went three days without it. And not to say anything about me, but I was headaches, and I felt weak, and I was probably good for nothing. <laughs> Seriously. The Word of God is food for our soul. Do you know what happens to your soul if you don't feed it good food or just food? We get sick spiritually and then emotionally and then mentally. No wonder so many Christians live their lives and there's no difference between them and their unbelieving neighbors because we're sick. No ability to make godly decisions. We are anemic, spiritually speaking. No ability to think critically. No ability to, to lead your family well. No, until, and let me add this, no passion or love for anything godly. I'm including myself here. I'm not preaching at you, I'm preaching at myself first. You know most of us if we're honest our answer for not being in in the word on a regular basis would be I just don't feel like it It's boring. I've used that many times even if I didn't verbalize it. That was the reason Just like I don't feel like it. I just don't feel like it. I can just watch it show on netflix. It's much easier more entertaining right A little that we know that passion and love for the word comes by being in the word have you ever seen a malnourished kid trying to eat? They have no desire or strength to eat. None. But you haven't eaten for 10 days. It, it doesn't work like that. They just they have no strength, no desire to eat. But you help them out and you get them to eat little by little. They start catching life again. And with just a little care and consistency, you get them back on their feet and they start living normally again. So let's not read the word, the word of God for another catchy Twitter phrase or so that you have some great, I don't know, catchy teaching points for your Instagram page or whatever. I'm just giving you examples. But to actually sit at the feet of Jesus and to actually get to know him personally. So where we didn't study the word, not only for information, but to know him and for transformation. Paul makes another big point at the end of these three verses, namely that the gospel marks an end of an era. Did you catch that? Another reason why this is a mystery, this was a mystery, For the people back then it's because it was totally unexpected for quite a lot of them especially for the if you were of Jewish of the Jewish faith that was it was for most of them it was totally unexpected they didn't expect the way God to to, for God to usher in his new kingdom the way he did through Christ no they weren't expecting that so 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 there is this old era the old covenant which came to an end and now we have the new covenant in Christ and Jesus was the one ushering the new covenant And specifically, there were four main things that are considered surprises if someone was of the Jewish faith when Jesus came to usher in the new covenant. Just want to share them with you really quickly. And the first one was Christ's death on the cross. That was a total surprise for a lot of them. This is one of the reasons why most of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law completely missed that Jesus was the Son of God. They were expecting a a Daniel 7 son of man, you know, the son of man who comes with lightning bolts and and is riding on the clouds and is powerful and he was going to set up this physical kingdom on earth and overthrow the Romans. That's, That's what many people were expecting. But Jesus came humbly. He came to save and seek the lost. He came to the sick and the poor and the outcasts and he died on a cross, right? That was unthinkable for a lot of them. It would make sense if you were to read Isaiah 53, sure, about the suffering servant and other prophecies that speak about the crucifixion and the suffering of Christ, sure, but this would have been a total surprise for, for what they were expecting out of a Messiah. And really quickly, the second thing that would have been such a surprise for them and was a surprise, it was the end of the law, in a way. I don't want to get in trouble. The end of the law, in a way, because Matthew 5.17 says Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. So the moral law, you can't change that. God's heart is behind that. You can't change that. But it was the end of the law in a way. Let me explain. A lot of people would have said, hold on a minute. Didn't God give us the law, 613 commandments? How can you be holy without these? You know what I mean? How can you relate to God without them? People couldn't wrap their minds around that right? Their whole lives revolved around the law, right? That's how they related to God. So Jesus came and created a brand new covenant, a brand new way to be in relationship with God, right? That is not mediated by following the law. It's mediated now through the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, which he has done in our place through his death, burial, and resurrection. So now we have this opportunity to have this new pathway open relationship directly to our heavenly father which is really amazing and again this would have been a total surprise for most of the jewish people i mean jesus summarizes the whole law and the prophets by saying that love the lord with all your heart and love your enemy as you love yourself and that's that's the whole law right there but we still have commandments church we still do don't get me wrong. Laws to follow as God's people. We have a king and we have the teachings of Jesus. And so many of the commandments in the Old Testament were reaffirmed and reiterated in the New Testament. And as I said earlier, the moral law doesn't change. God's heart is behind it. And yet, we're not bound by the Mosaic law, but by a brand new covenant that Jesus ushered in. Quickly, third, the third surprise would have been God's presence through the Holy Spirit. This would have been like, what are you talking about? God with us at all times? No way. In a Jewish thought, if you wanted to be close to God's presence, being at the temple would have been the closest you would ever get. Because that's where his presence was, the Holy of Holies. And even the priests were not allowed to go in. only once a year, the high priest would go in once once a year, right, and play the role as a mediator between the people and God. So for the Jewish people, it was totally unexpected, because how could you get close to God, closer to God than the Holy of Holies? And yet with the ushering of the church in the new age, Jesus said that He was going to send His Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us. And this is a pretty remarkable and amazing reality, isn't it? Just just think about it. to have the presence of God within us at all times, to have the Holy Spirit, God live inside of us to have him make of us his house his temple his dwelling place this was definitely a mystery this was a total surprise about the gospel and the fourth one really quickly the fourth mystery that was a surprise about the gospel which is paul's main point in the text by the way this is the main point right here is to is the full equality within the church full equality within the church we're all the same we're all the same Sure, Jews have, would have known the Old Testament. They would have known the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12, that God's ultimate plan was to bless the whole earth, right? They knew that there was, there was going to be a deliverance for more than just people within, right? Uh, and yet, they haven't quite grasped how equal the Jews and the Gentiles were going to be. They haven't. Would Jews and Gentiles be on equal footing? Or would Gentiles be a second-class, second-rate citizen in God's kingdom? And by the way, we're all Gentiles, just so we're clear. And that was the most surprising thing for many people within the early church. And in fact, Paul emphasizes this fourth point with three different detailed ways. He describes the Gentile and Jewish equality within the kingdom in three ways in verse 6. We'll just read it and we'll close after this. Check this out. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, number one, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Really quickly, a few things to each one of these things. So Gentiles are fellow heirs. That means that we all all have the same inheritance, church. We all have the same heavenly home. We all have the same blessings from God when it comes to our home in heaven. Let me go to the second one. The second thing that Paul emphasizes about the full equality within the church is the same body. So not only the same inheritance, we have same heaven, same home, we're going home, right? But then the same body, right? And yet that means that we are attached to Christ and one another. When Paul says that we are a part of the same body, he actually creates a brand new Greek word. Did you know that? Which is pretty fascinating. It's the Greek word susoma. Actually, a combination of two words. It's the word "sun," which means with, and the word soma, which means body. So it means a body with one another. So it wasn't enough for Paul just to say, hey, we're one body. No, no, no. He's like, we're a body with one another, just to make just to make sure that we get the picture here. We're one body. So what he's saying is this. It's impossible to be attached to Jesus, church. That's what he's saying. And not be simultaneously attached to his body, to the church. Impossibility. Impossible. The two go hand in hand. And by the way, there has to be physical evidence that you believe that. That you are a body with one another in your local church. Because the local church is an expression of the universal church. So this right here, Summit Church, is an expression of the universal church of Jesus Christ. And this body right here needs to be one body. And there has to be evidence that you believe that you're one body. Even your presence on Sunday morning can be evidence of that. Even our investing and serving is evidence of that. And the list goes on and on and on. This is why this household metaphor that even, you know, Raz was talking about last week is so important. You cannot build on the foundation of Jesus Christ and not simultaneously be built together with other followers of Jesus. You cannot. You can't. How amazing is it, church, that there will be a marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven and you are going to be seated beside people from past, present, and future. Maybe for some people that's not exciting. This is like, ugh. From all generations, people from every tribe, tongue, and ethnic group, people that look like you and people that do not look like you. So we might as well start being that kind of family right here and right now, Right? And the third thing that Paul says to emphasize this full equality is that we are partakers of the promise. We're all partakers of the promise of God. Do you know what this means? This means that all the promises of God, promises of hope, promises of healing, promises of forgiveness, promises of salvation, promises of peace, all the promises of God are available to everyone who is within the body of Christ. That's powerful that's beautiful it took people like Peter Peter big guy big apostle it took people like Peter eight years to really get this equality within the church there's something here when Paul says that this is a mystery and it's totally unexpected and he says it has been revealed to me that's not all that he's saying actually let me just read it to you in verse 5 he says uh, it was now been revealed, It has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. He's saying, don't just take my word for it. Don't. This mystery has been revealed to all the apostles, all the prophets, and all the leaders of the church. A good example would be in Acts 10. This is about eight years. Eight years after, the, after Pentecost Sunday, where the church really began with the outpouring of the Spirit. Right? Peter, who's functionally their leader, the leader of the church... He had to receive direct revelation from the Holy Spirit about this. Among other things, God told him to go to the house of a Gentile named Cornelius. And he goes there, he preaches the gospel, and then Cornelius and his entire house receive the gospel and get baptized. But that's eight years after. But can we really, we can be really surprised at this and say, wow, eight years, Peter, really? But that's how surprising this kind of revolutionary reconciliation God does through his gospel. So Paul here is writing to the church in Ephesus decades after, decades after that moment. And the church is still struggling and wrestling with this issue. And we can feel Paul's heart on this issue. He's like, guys, I'm just trying to share my revelation to demystify To take the veil off of this beautiful mystery of Christ. Which is not just reconciliation personally between God and people. But a corporate reconciliation between one another. We have problems with this today as well. 2,000 years after. And woke theology and social justice are definitely not helping with it. If anything, they are dividing the church apart, driving the church apart. Because God created us with some differences, yes, duh. But an evil system called oppressor and oppressed forces us to oppose each other and to see our differences as something bad. The reality is that critical social justice is not driven at all by this amazing vision of God to reconcile people with Him and then people with each other. But what we're reminded again today by the Word of God is that if we are in Christ, we are all heirs of Christ, part of the same body, the same family, all partakers of the promise of God. Church, can we just focus on this beautiful reality and truth rather than the secondary issues that drive us apart? (laughs) Sure, when it comes to the details, we are all created differently. We have different upbringings and different backgrounds. We we are different, sure. But the beauty of being in Christ is that we can celebrate all these secondary differences because we have something much more valuable in common. Our Savior, our family in God, our inheritance, our salvation. In closing, maybe you find yourself in a position of pre-faith pre-faith Where you you've not yet put your faith and trust in jesus I don't believe that it's an accident that you're here And I would just say to you that all the promises of god the inheritance of a home In heaven within the church all the blessings of god They are only available Just as paul says right at the end of our passage only in christ through the gospel That's the only way we we become part of this new humanity, the people of God, by putting our faith in Jesus. Trusting the work He did on the cross on our behalf and trusting Him as our Lord and Savior. And I pray and hope that the veil has been uncovered from your eyes. So that you can see the truth of the gospel. I just want to invite you. Wouldn't Wouldn't this be a waste of time if we just kind of do this, we would do this as a like an official thing where I have to come up here and say a few words. No, no, this is real. This is real life. This is, it doesn't get any more real than this. So I just want to invite you today to respond to the gospel by praying and asking God to forgive your sins. He does that. He loves forgiving and to lead your life. And I also want to challenge you to take the step of baptism. Baptism is a ceremony. To the step of faith that Jesus asked us to take. And this goes for everyone who wants to commit their life to following him. But maybe for most of us here, we have taken this step of faith already. If that's the case, two practices for us to focus on today. And I'm ending with this. Two application points. The first one is to share the mystery of Christ with people. Share the mystery of Christ. It's not a mystery for you anymore. But share the mystery of Christ with them so that it wouldn't be a mystery for them either. again this word mystery doesn't mean that you have to be sherlock holmes they have to figure it out somehow it has clearly been revealed from heaven to all of us and yet we can just be honest let's be honest that as in first corinthians 1 paul says that the cross of christ is foolishness for the world it is to those that do not have the holy spirit in their lives they don't know jesus at a personal level they're not reading their scriptures the cross of jesus is foolishness it is But we can be a part of demystifying the mystery of Christ for someone who doesn't know Jesus yet. For those that think that the cross is stupid, man, are you kidding me? You guys believe in a myth. Help them demystify this mystery for them. And you can do that simply by sharing your story. You don't have to be a theological expert, you don't have to have all the answers, you don't have to be a preacher to do that. And I would just say to us, man, share your story. I mean, just think about what convinced you, what connected the dots for you. And then just share the gospel simply and clearly. And the second practice for us today is to join what God is already doing in the world. Full circle back to my initial question. We often want a Google Maps God. We want a God who tells us the plan for our life in detail. I think asking that question may be the wrong approach here. Instead of trying to identify step by step that we should be what, should we, what we should be doing each day, we should be looking for where God is already working and join him there. We should be looking for what God's reconciliation plan is for his people and between people and God. This is God's plan for your life, to join him, to join the kingdom's work that God is already doing. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.